The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, a senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, it's hard to imagine that just a couple months after the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation Summit in Beijing, where $60 billion, another $60 billion was committed to Africa, we thought at this time there would be this kind of enthusiasm for Chinese investment in Africa and Chinese spending in Africa. But yet here we are, a new headline from the the really excellent editor of the, the Africa editor at the Financial Times, David Pilling, who wrote an article alongside of uh, with Emily Fung, Chinese investments in Africa go off the rails. A really stunning headline and not where we expect it to be at this point in the China-Africa story. But really, when we look back on the year, Cobus, it's been the year of debt. It's been the year of mounting concerns over the loans. And now what we're starting to see in this article from David Pilling and Emily Fung is the concerns are not only coming from the African side, but they're also coming from the Chinese side about the quality of the investments and whether or not it makes sense to continue plowing in massive amounts of money into African infrastructure. Yeah, this is a this is a, a very interesting debate, um, and it's also I think notable for being both a debate that's taking place in China and in Africa. Um, and you know the the debate kind of overlaps in interesting ways, but they're also quite separate in in other ways. Um, each raising the kind of concerns of the particular kind of population involved. And so so it's it's really I think it seems like a it, we might be coming up to a kind of a turning point in the relationship. It really does feel like we're hitting an inflection point. It's hard to know when you're hitting an inflection point in the moment. It's only something that you can see in hindsight. But let's use the case here that David Pilling and Emily Fung kind of point out. And we'll summarize the article here. It's on the FT website. The FT has a pretty strict paywall, so it's hard to get it. Uh, But if you do have a subscription, it's worthwhile reading. They point out the Djibouti Addis Ababa rail line that was cost $4.5 billion. It was the first fully electrified cross-border railway in Africa. Massive milestone. Now, remember, up until this, uh, this time, most railways in Africa never crossed a border because the colonial powers built the rails all the way up to the border. In fact, the gauge, which is the, the distance of the tracks or the rails between each other, were different depending on what colonial country built the rail line. So the French had one gauge, the British had another gauge, and so forth. So the Chinese come here and they build a standard gauge railways. They're doing that in Kenya, in Djibouti, and in Addis Ababa. This $4.5 billion electrified cross-border railway was huge. Now, the problem is, is that $4.5 billion and then $3.2 billion on the Kenyan side of the, uh, of the equation uh, is an enormous amount of money for this part of the world. And a lot of people at the time said, how are they going to pay this off? And what David Pilling and Emily Fung have basically kind of come up with in their reporting is, well, guess what? They're not going to pay it off. And money is now bleeding all over the place. On the one hand, the Chinese have lost almost a billion dollars on these deals. And now also, 
Djibouti, Kenyan, and Ethiopian taxpayers are on the hook for a lot of the debts that were incurred to build this railway. So this seems to be a moment of clarity, Kobus, that we're reaching here that says maybe these infrastructure gambles that African leaders are taking are not worth it anymore. And I think that's the real takeaway from this article for me. I would probably have a somewhat different takeaway in the sense that um, I think, I don't think these, these um, you know, kind of difficult moments are, are, are diminishing Africa's need for more of this kind of infrastructure. I think, you know, on the African side, I think everyone is aware that we need another 20 of these of these cross cross border rail lines um, because the even even you know there, there's a lot of complications in terms of how they're being used but but the in general the 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 general you know kind of issue that Africa is suffering from a lack of cross border infrastructure has not that has not gone away I think what it is really changing is how these deals are being approached and I think there's an increasing kind of pressure from from African populations that the negotiations for whatever next deal comes has to be a lot more transparent than these have been. What about the fundamental economics, though? So let's say it's fully transparent. And, and I don't think we should talk about the need necessarily because everybody agrees on the need. Uh, yeah. All the basic estimates put out there that there's a $1 trillion infrastructure deficit in Africa over 10 years. So about $100 billion of, Africa, of infrastructure is needed to be built across the continent for the next 10 years in order to close the infrastructure deficit. There's no dispute on that. And, but the question is, is how do you pay for it? And do big infrastructure projects like cross-border railways actually pay for themselves, even with all the transparency in the world? So this is the comment that's been coming up about the criticism of the first phase of the standard gauge railway in Kenya, is that they've now raised the fees on cargo because the original, the original fees were too low, they weren't making any money on it, and taxpayers were having to make up for the difference. That's obviously angering a lot of taxpayers who said, listen, we didn't vote for this in the first place, and now we're being forced to pay the bills. So I can understand where Kenyan taxpayers are coming from on this. That being said, you talked about the need here. We need the infrastructure in Africa. The Chinese are willing to pay for it. They're making money off of it, but the loans are coming in too fast and maybe the projects are too ambitious in order to digest them economically. Now, you and I are both not economists, but common sense would say, how can you pay off $4.5 billion on a rail line that just isn't generating that much traffic? Yeah, I mean, you know, the the, the issue of the traffic um, is... Is interesting and, and I think quite revealing because in 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 but in the Kenyan case, the passenger tra- traffic exploded. Like everyone, it, like the the you know the the standard gauge railway was quite successful in getting, you know, in, in, in transporting people. It was a, a lot less successful in transporting um, cargo. And one of the reasons for that is that there was uh, the. You know, trucking is quite a, a, a centrally controlled, um, you know, business in Kenya, and they were trucking cartels, who were who were protecting their kind of trucking businesses, you know, um, and undercutting in in you know through lots of different means, undercutting the the, the trains cargo business. So it it became quite difficult to actually get the get um, you know the businesses to actually use the use the trains, and and in that 
um, you know, in, in in that context, the making the the rates lower made a lot of sense. But then, of course, you know, it ended up <laughs> it ended up being not sustainable from you know from the position of of the Kenyan taxpayers. So it, it shows how what a kind of a complicated calculus it is. There's similar issues in in the the case of Ethiopia because Ethiopia has just made peace with Eritrea after a very long you know conflict, um, which means is now Eritrean harbors are now opening up to. It, which means that the that there's less less of a of a natural reason to only use the the, the Addis Ababa Djibouti railway line for for cargo. Now there's several other options open uh, for for cargo to you know to 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 receive and to send out cargo, um, and so all of the developments. Around the, the the harbor in Djibouti and the the rail line between Addis Ababa to Djibouti, are now facing a completely different economic calculus. Now I wonder if we're being fair in evaluating this because, and this is something that I mentioned in a talk that I gave last week at the Royal Asiatic Society in Shanghai, who was kind enough to invite me to talk about the current state of China-Africa relations. And one of the things that we brought up was the idea that when they were building the New York subway or the London subway or the Paris metro or any of the massive amount of infrastructure projects in the West, say the the highway system in America during the 1950s, they didn't have social media at that time that was commenting or 24-hour news that was reporting on all of this. And so we're watching this in real time. When other countries were able to develop and to kind of take these risks, suffer the corruption, all of the investment that goes into building massive infrastructure projects, they did it without the audience and the people looking at it and commenting at it and whatnot. So that gave a little bit of insulation to political leaders to take these risks and to endure the inevitable problems that come with big projects like this. These are inevitably long-term projects that may not pay themselves off in the first 5, 10, 15 years, but in 20, 25 years, that's when the real payoff comes. That's how infrastructure oftentimes works. So I wonder when we're looking at this, I mean, this rail line just opened. Fair enough that the economics of it right now don't look good, but is this something that maybe in 5, 10 years will look a lot better and people won't regret actually taking this risk? Yeah, I mean, you know, um, we we're about to publish um, a paper by um, by two researchers, one of whom has, has actually been on the podcast before, Lauren Johnston, um, on on green infrastructure and the, the the lessons that Africa can take from Chinese infrastructure experiences and how to how to try and kind of make infrastructure greener. Um, and one of the points that they raised was that in a lot of cases, uh, some of the most successful mass transit systems within cities, so city city kind of subway systems, um, end up still being subsidized by the state sometimes decades after they were they were built um, because you need a very low low per per unit ticket price to make it attractive but they pay for themselves they might not pay for themselves through ticket revenue but they pay for themselves in the larger kind of economic you know, kind of injection that they give to a city. You know, a city that doesn't have to deal with gridlock anymore, that doesn't have to deal with a massive amount of air pollution coming from cars, and that has a way of moving people easily around very efficiently. They they pay for themselves in terms of all of the different businesses that manage to, to now thrive because of their influence. So they have a larger kind of economic, you know, benefit to, to a city or to a community that goes beyond their particular profitability. Even those in, and in some cases, even in very big cities, it's some of them still struggle to actually be profitable. Apparently the Beijing um, subway system struggles for a long time to actually re- break even. Mm-hmm. 
Support for this podcast comes from the Africa Channel Reporting Project at Witt University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at WitzChinaAfrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. Now, let me you know, get your take on, 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 on this situation from a different point of view. This case here of the Addis Ababa rail line, the Djibouti Addis Ababa rail line, is exactly what the Americans have been talking about when they say that the Chinese are engaging in predatory lending. They said that these are projects that never have any chance of making any money, and the Chinese are loading up these African countries with massive amounts of debt in construction projects that are built by Chinese state-owned enterprises, with a lot of the finance going back to China, very little of it making its way into the local economy. But at the end of the day, there is, of course, a rail line that's left there. How do you respond and how should we think about this in terms of that narrative of the predatory lending? Does this, in fact confirm articles like this by David Pilling, who is really the, I have the utmost respect for him. This is not a guy who panders in propaganda or the politics of of the moment. He's very, very thoughtful. But if I was in, in Washington right now reading this and thinking, aha, this is the proof that I've been looking for that shows that China is in fact engaged in this unsustainable, what they would call debt trap diplomacy or predatory lending. Tell me, what's your take on that side of the story? I, I have more. I have questions that that I feel sh- should be raised to kind of complicate the narrative a little bit, while not necessarily completely dismissing it. The one question I would raise would be, what was the role of the African government in this? You know, kind of because the, the predatory lending narrative tends to leave the the role of the African government a little bit blank, um, or to simply assume. I don't know exactly what it assumes. I think in some some readings of the narrative, it assumes that the, the that the the government was is is corrupt and tends to enrich itself. And you know, it seems in the case of the Kenyan Sanegesh role that that there seems to be allegations around corruption um, there. Um, and, you know, some Kenyan, you know, different people that I've spoken with have complained that they feel that um, the price was unfairly loaded by by actors within the government. Um, so that's the role of the government is one thing. The second thing is, um, is the role of transparency. And that, I think, comes down also to the role of the African government in a, in a lot of cases. Then, but then this, the second question that I also want to raise is where's the predatory part? I can see the, I can see the, the unfortunate part of how how bad this is for African taxpayers. But in but to call it predatory lending, you, you are implying that there's a co- kind of a cohesive overarching Chinese strategy happening. And that I'm not hundred percent sure I've seen enacted yet. And and I have to say that it's of course very early days, you know? So if if like say, you know, a year and a half from now there's some kind of incident where where there is a, a you know some kind of l- political or, or diplomatic leverage enacted by China through the debt, then I'll be like, well, there, there we go. There, there we, we just saw it. But we haven't seen it yet. You know, I haven't seen this debt being used as an instrument yet. Um, you know, so, so, so that then raises the question, is it predatory or is it extremely unfortunate? You know, and, 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 those, and those two, the, the kind of, the, there's a, a range there, you know, um, of, of, of what China's role is going to be. What, what do well, you think? Well, we have seen some hints of this. Some, some early hints of this 
In the past couple months, there was a dispute between China and Kenya over tilapia fish. And uh, Kenyatta, in I think it was October, uh, made a move to ban the import of frozen tilapia fish into Kenya, in part to satisfy a core constituency of of fishermen in Kenya who feel that they're being undersold by Chinese imports. And I think in in Kenyatta's framing, this was a very low-cost uh, politically low-cost way of pushing back on the Chinese because he's facing enormous pressure uh, for the decisions that he's made to take on so much debt. He's having to raise fuel taxes right now. All of that combined means that he has to kind of push back somehow. He puts this ban, and boy, the Chinese embassy in Nairobi just loses it. Mm-hmm. And within two weeks, they reversed course, but only after the acting Chinese ambassador indicated that the funding for the second phase of the SGR may be in, in jeopardized because of this deal. And in the words, trade sanctions apparently were uttered as well. And in some, some ways, it was a echoing of Donald Trump-style politics, which is this very aggressive brute force, but it was really leveraging China's disproportionate size and power over Kenya's in order to exact, uh, to, to guide policy to its desired outcome. So the infrastructure loans could be tools and, and, and pawns, if you will, in the broader relationship that China clearly has leverage with. And so that, that's yeah. one indication. And now, again, we can't say that that is something that's happening across the board because, A, it never did happen. It was merely a threat. But the fact that it was a threat that stood out there and Kenyatta had far more to lose by trying to pursue this than just backing down as he did. But I got to say... It did not make Kenyatta look strong in the eyes of his people when he had to back down like that. No, definitely. And also, um, you know, but, but uh, yeah, in, in terms of uh, just to, to com- like, a, like a complicating detail, in the first place, you know, putting, putting the, the funding for the second phase of the, of the standard gauge railway, you know, on the table in that way was in a little bit, to just, just struck me as a bit of a moot point because the, the funding for the second phase of the standard gauge railway is kind of up in the air anyway um, because the, the Chinese have announced that they um, that they are going to do a whole set of sustainability studies and feasibility studies around that in in response to some of the criticisms that they got for earlier parts of the Santa Gage Railway. So you know, so so that was an interesting kind of thing to use, you know, considering to, to threaten to take it away when it's kind of maybe not coming anyway, um, and then um, yeah, it, it also struck me as as a very discordant note within the wider China-Africa relationship. You know, so so I was wondering a little bit how, you know, kind of what the conversation was behind the scenes in Beijing with the embassy in Kenya, you know, because taking that kind of sharp, hard tone so early on was such a, it, it, it came off, uh, you know, it struck such a kind of discordant note in all of the discourse around China-Africa relations. And they must have known that it would draw a lot of attention in Africa. Um, and they must also have known that, you know, in, in Africa, they're dealing with a narrative that China looks so friendly, but they, but inside they actually have a whole set of, a whole secret agenda that Africa should be scared of. Um, and it seemed to play completely into that narrative. So I was wondering whether in Beijing it was seen as, as, yes, you know, standing up for China or whether it was seen as a kind of a gaffe. I mean, it's impossible to know. 
It's impossible to know, and I, I will be the first to admit that I have no insights whatsoever as to what happens in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs inside Beijing. I have no sources. I don't know anybody. I don't know anybody who knows anybody. So with that disclaimer out there, let me put my best theory forward. The politics in China are not different than the politics in other countries. Many people make the mistake in thinking that China is this centralized entity that acts, you know, with clarity on everything. And there's 10 men sitting around the Politburo who make every decision and then the rest of the world falls in line. If only it were that because it is nothing like that. There are factions just the same way as there are in the United States, in London, in Paris that are competing for influence, competing for attention and whatnot. So this may have been uh, a rogue decision by an ambassador, hardly I don't believe that's the case because things like that generally don't happen for the most part. It may have been just an impulse that the Ministry of Foreign Affairs wanted to try out. They're testing out new policies. We haven't seen this type of of, of behavior before. So maybe it's a, a trial balloon that they're putting out. Uh, it may be a faction inside the government that wants to shift broader China-Africa policy into a different direction, into maybe a more confrontational approach. Maybe there are factions that want to pull back from this massive amount of investing. And I think this is a good opportunity for us to look at this from the Chinese point of view. And there is a very legitimate case to be made that it is not worth investing the money in places like Africa because the risks are simply too high. Uh, and a, a, a private American financial advisory firm, A.T. Kearney, came out this week with uh, their own assessment of the situation of investing in Africa. And they believe that so long as interest rates in the United States are going to go up, which we believe they will, money is going to start leaving Africa. And they really attest that to three criteria. They said that there is political uncertainty, a lack of transparency, and governance. Now, those are three long-standing issues in Africa. They've made tremendous improvements. People on Twitter, when I posted this, were very, very quick to remind me that in all three, many African governments have made improvements. But in the context of rising U.S. interest rates, it is better to invest your money in the United States or in treasury bills or in other investments that are far more stable than building railways for great expense in places like Djibouti that may not be able to pay them back, if in fact this is all about generating a return on investment, which that itself we don't even know is in fact the main motivator for the Chinese. Yeah, so I, I guess mean, that, my point that here, is an open question, yeah. It is an open question. The, so again, the lack of transparency as to what the Chinese motives are make it so that people like you and I are on the outside looking in and guessing. Now, if we're guessing, obviously people in Africa are guessing and people in China are guessing. Nobody really knows what the ultimate motivations are. But so I think nonetheless, there is an appetite here to diversify investments beyond, beyond Africa onto other points along the Belt and Road. I think that's number one because Belt and Road spending is now being curtailed. As you pointed out earlier in the program, President Xi Jinping is now trying to guide people away from vanity projects, is what he called them, which are these uh, very expensive but not very worthwhile big infrastructure projects, and to try to put an extra layer of assessment on whether or not it makes sense to do some of these projects, because a lot of them have just been colossal wastes of money. I mean, just of unimaginable proportions. But I guess you're, you're going to expect that when you spend $250, $300, $350 billion the way the Chinese have uh, with Belt and Road up to, this, up to this point. 
So if I've confused you and our listeners with my rambling answer here, the point is, yes, it's very, very confusing. Nobody really knows. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think I think one factor that, that is also increasingly important is Chinese domestic opinion about about these kind of outward investor investments. Um, you know, I, I recently spoke with a with a Chinese um uh, government official, and and he was. Um, it was the first time that in in these conversations where they where they acknowledged that the, that investment in Africa is actually quite unpopular in China. You know, and of course this is economic crunch time in China, um, especially in the face of you know of a as yet kind of unresolved trade war with the U.S. Um, so there's a lot of anxiety, I think, among ordinary Chinese about this. Um, this payments, and then you also made the point that any kind of call from African governments about um, about the fact that the the financing that was announced at FOCAC this year didn't increase from the 2015 amount. All of that plays extremely negatively in on Chinese social media, you know? So it's all portrayed as these, these kind of greedy Africans who just want, you know, more and more money out of China. At the same time, in the African discourse, there's so much anxiety being raised about, the, about rising debt levels and with it, the kind of African version of the predatory lending narrative, which is that, oh, China is showering all of this debt on African governments and trying to undercut Africa African sovereignty and trying to essentially steal Africa through the back door. Um, you know, so it's very interesting how, like, the same set of debt is generating these two weirdly complementary, like, negative discourses in, with, you know, kind of on different kinds of social media around the world. It's crazy. It is. Now, I think there's some, a footnote to your point on Chinese public opinion. For the most part, Chinese public opinion about international affairs, particularly something like China-Africa relations is highly misinformed and highly in very, very, most people know very little about it. And what they do know about it is a heavily sanitized view of international relations as provided by the government, given that the media here is highly censored. So I th when I talk to a lot of normal people uh, about international affairs, not just about China, but about the United States and whatnot, um, it's quite rudimentary and quite basic. And most people are surprised to learn that they're not giving money to Africa, they're loaning money to Africa that they're getting a return on that investment. Small as it may be, they're not losing money on that investment Well, up until now for the most part. And that's, some, that's a subtlety that a lot of people don't really understand. I will say, by the way, that I find similar levels of ignorance in the United States about international affairs. So this is nothing unique to the Chinese, per se. Uh, Americans tend to think that they spend billions and billions and billions of dollars and high percentage points of their gross federal budget on foreign aid, when in fact it's one one-thousandth of the U.S. federal budget goes to foreign assistance. Uh, so there are, you know, distortions on both sides that people have. But for the most part, most Chinese are not very well educated when it comes to international affairs and what their own government is doing in places like Africa, South America, and along the Belt and Road along these lines. But yet, yeah, well, nonetheless... Exactly. I mean, sorry to interrupt you. The I mean, it also it becomes a weird kind of indication that China is, 
you know, moving out of its developing country phase. Because I think if there is, you know, if there is a, a kind of a hallmark of being a developed country, it is this kind of weird resentment about the money that development yeah. finance is being paid out, you know, um, in, and, and, and a refusal to acknowledge that, that most of these are loans and that they, they end up making more money for, for the lending country than they paid out. You know, for, for a long time, for, for several years in a row, um, Japan, for example, which is a, which is a, a large lender to Africa, um, was making a lot more money from uh, interest payments on loans than they were actually paying out. Um, they were they were making profit from the aid, um, and I think that's true for a lot of places actually. You know, and that's that's the narrative that that the populations of these countries never acknowledge or very very infrequently acknowledge. Well, there's two things that play very poorly on Chinese social media when it comes to these types of assistance programs. Number one, people still need to remember that although China may be rich, second largest economy in the world, $3 trillion in, in foreign reserves, the Chinese are still relatively poor. And that's in part because most of China, or big parts of it, uh, do not live in the major metropolitan urban centers. They live in still urban areas that are relatively poor. So the Shanghai, Beijing, Shenzhen, those kind of that corridor along the East Coast uh, is very, very wealthy, economic levels on par with big parts of Europe and, and the United States. Uh, but the rest of the country is not like that at all. And there's about 200 million people uh, that are in the subsistence level and about 50 million people that are to 100 million people that live in chronic dire poverty. And so when people see that China is giving school buses to children in Romania, um, it just infuriates a lot of people here because they say that in their own country, they're not getting school buses. Uh, a lot of kids have very, very dangerous modes of transportation to get to school uh, or if they have any transportation. We were in the countryside in rural uh, Guizhou province and kids walk uh, five, 10 kilometers sometimes to get to school or ride bikes and, and have to endure very, very harsh weather conditions. So it just pisses people off when they see that China is giving aid to other countries when there's so much suffering at home. That's a narrative, by the way, that we hear in the United States. Take care of ourselves first, America first. Uh, so a lot of those same things are, are quite universal, as you pointed out. The second point was that after FOCAC, China had to censor the discussion about FOCAC on social media because people, again, were upset that they're giving away too much money to Africa because they don't see Africa as a core national security interest or strategic interest the same way that they see, for example, here in Asia. So giving money or loaning money or developing uh, Southeast Asia or South Asia is seen more as a core national interest for the Chinese rather than somewhere as far away, remote and exotic to them as Africa is. And certainly that's the same way in the Caribbean and Latin America as well. So those are the topics on Chinese social media. Uh, so let's just get back very quickly, wrap up on our discussion about Chinese investments in Africa going off the rails, as David Pilling and Emily Fung wrote about in the Financial Times this week. Do you think we are at that inflection point? And if we are at that inflection point where things get more dicey, more sensitive, uh, and, all, you know, maybe a little bit rough weather ahead for us, what does that mean for this China-Africa relationship going into 2019? I mean, I would be extremely surprised if, if this is somehow the end of Chinese infrastructure lending in Africa. Um, you know, I, I think there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of kind of pulling in the same direction, both from China and Africa still happening. Um, 
I would think though that that we may be in for for uh, the maybe the the honeymoon around the lending is over, um, and especially in in terms of its the way that it's popularly discussed. And I think we in, in Africa definitely we're going to see a lot more popular pressure for for more transparency. Um, and I mean that you know more transparency on the pressure for more transparency on African governments. I, I can only support that. You know that that is long overdue. Um, it's going to be very interesting to see how China responds to that. If there is a, a, a kind of a comprehensive, widespread, popular campaign in a country like Kenya, which has a very vibrant press and a very vibrant social media, um, it'll be interesting to see how China responds to that. You know, because in the past we have seen that China has tended to respond to two particular kind of African governance climates and and even for in, in some cases to um, calls from social media I think you know um, the ivory ban in in China to a certain extent a response to to this kind of popular pressure you know coming from places like 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 Africa and definitely I mean um, also amplified by Western NGOs that shouldn't be left out of the equation but it would be you know if that if there is some form of um, popular campaign or concerted pressure for more for more transparency it'll be very interesting to see whether the Chinese government can find a way of being more transparent about about these kind of deal negotiations. Um, you know, because because at the moment, I think the, 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 the other um, potential outcome is as widespread kind of resistance against these kind of big projects, um, which would definitely be an interesting kind of new chapter in the China-Africa relationship. So we may not see that transparency come from the Chinese state, but we may see it come through some of its new financial organizations that it's built, such as the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, the New Development Bank, the BRICS Bank, that have all committed to international levels of transparency. So the Chinese may actually route more and more of their financing through those banks. Those banks are committed to doing business in a more transparent international way. That may be how we get there. I'm skeptical if we'll see it on the state side, because that's just not the way that this government in Beijing operates. Uh, but, the, you know, they've surprised me the before, other thing, yeah, so it's well, possible. The, the other thing I would probably add to that is that we might be seeing a, a kind of a different narrative coming up. You know, the, like one of the cliches of the China-Africa relationship is always the story that, um, oh, Europe and America, they have so many conditionalities to their loans, they have so many strings attached, and the Chinese don't have any strings attached. I think that increasingly we're in for a new era of Chinese strings being attached. You know, I think, you know, the, the fact that the Chinese state is now calling for, for more sustainability studies, more feasibility studies um, before, you know, approving projects, you know, that, that seems to be a few strings, you know. So, so it, it, we, might, we might see more conditionality in, in this lending and in, in, in which case uh, they will become more standard you know, kinds of loans, you know, they, they, they'll be less different from, from Western alternatives than they were before. Very quickly, my two takeaways from this is the fact that I think we may see a pause or at least a slowing down of official state lending, uh, which may not be the worst thing in the world. Let some of these loans digest, let them settle in, let's see who can pay, who can't pay and figure things out rather than keep plowing in more loans and more loans in a system that may not be able to handle it. And we're seeing in some countries definitely can't handle it and could be politically uh, very, very volatile in places like Zambia and Kenya. Uh, but we will, we're probably going to see a surge in Chinese private investment in Africa. 
Uh, I believe Huawei is going to invest a lot more in Africa as they find it more difficult to invest in places like Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the United States, and now the UK, where they're being shut out. So the the demarcation of the lines between the US and China in terms of dividing up the world for technology, as some technology experts believe is going to happen in the new artificial intelligence era that we're embarking on, uh, those fault lines may be uh, now being identified and Africa's tends to fall on the side of the Chinese, given the presence of Chinese tech companies. Also, companies like Alibaba are making their first investments in Africa. So we might see a big surge in Chinese corporate investment and a pause or slowdown on the state side. That would be my wishful thinking. What do you think? This is a very volatile issue. We've probably raised more questions than we've solved in our discussion tonight. Uh, That is the way that we normally do it on the show, because our goal here is not necessarily to tell you how to think, but just to try to ask people to look at the questions from different ways. And uh, so I just want to, uh, to kind of leave you with that. Also, very quick shout out to, once again, to the folks at the Royal Asiatic Society who were very kind to invite me and uh, also to give a quick uh, heads up to some of the folks who were there who listened to the show, Dwayne, Ken, Josh, Rachel, Robert. Uh, So nice to see you guys. Thank you so much for listening to the program. Very happy that you were able to join us last night at the at the at the RAS and uh, hopefully Cobus and I we got to do a, a session one of these days you and I together we have not done that in a long time and so uh, one day you and I have to be in the same city Cobus for us to do that so yes um, we'll we'll sing a power ballad from the same we, mic that's right we got Oh, that sounds terrifying. Um, <laughs> but listen, until the power ballad, Cobus uh, and I will be back again uh, next week with another edition of the show. We're coming up. We have one more show before the end of the year, and then we're going to do our annual review and preview program before we take a one-week holiday for the uh, for the Christmas New Year break. Uh, but we'll be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. For Cobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at eOlander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com. <laughs>